Seriously, we're going to do this. I said, are you kidding me? Yeah, we're going to do it. It'll be okay. 1-800-U-Haul. I'm sure someone will be calling for that. I can at least say a pastor friend of mine sent that to me yesterday. And I said to uh, Sean Coslin, actually, maybe you know Sean. Uh, his dad is director of uh, Seneca Hills for a long time. Pastor up in Sandy Lake. He sent me this yesterday. And I said to Chuck, can you get this off the Internet? That's cool. Anybody going to the game? Oh, yeah, we're not. We're all watching it. <laughs> I mean, if you had a parent somewhere along the way, or maybe you even were one of those that said some of those crazy phrases. I mean, did you grow up with a dad who would say things like to you, do you want me to give you something to cry about? <laughs> do you have that? Yeah. No, no, I've already found it. Thank you for... That's why I'm crying. I love those, you know, when they're driving 60 miles an hour and the kids are misbehaving in the back seat. What was the classic phrase? Do you want me to come back there? <laughs> not now. Really not ever, but really not now while you're driving 60 miles an hour. I, I love this one. Maybe none of you had a dad like that, but I, I love this one. What do you think, I'm stupid? Okay, how do you answer that question? You cannot answer that question. The classic one, any of you have more than that, I would just, if you have more than that, let me know, because those are some of the classic ones that I've heard. The classic one is this, don't do what I do, do what I what? Say. Don't do what I do, do what I say. James would say what? No. Because your actions speak way louder than your words. It's not doing what you say, it's what you do that really indicates that the life of God lives in you. I'm sure at some point or the other you've heard a, a, an actor on a stage or a, a, a sports hero stand up and maybe give glory to God, maybe say something about God. I, I cannot tell you how I know, but just let me say this today, that Ben's transformation is genuine and it's real. And a few weeks from now or maybe a few months from now, I'll tell you how I know but I know it's real. But every once in a while, you'll hear one of these sports heroes stand up, and they may say something about God, or somebody will stand up and get an award of some kind, and they'll say something about God, and you'll wonder in your mind, are they really a believer? I mean, is it that just generic phrase, I give credit to God, or I give glory to God, or thank God for getting me through this, or thank God for this award, or is it real? Have you ever wondered that? You'll hear a phrase, you'll hear a, a statement of some kind, and you wonder, is that person really a believer? Well, James would very quickly say, you watch them long enough, and you'll be able to tell. You watch them long enough, and you'll be able to tell. Brennan Manning, in his book, Signature of Jesus, said this. In a final analysis, faith is not the sum of our beliefs or a way of thinking or a way of speaking. It's a way of living that can only be articulated adequately in a living practice. We don't need to theorize about Jesus. We've got to make him real. We have to make them real in our time, in our culture, and in our circumstances. 
Only the true practice of our Christian faith can verify what we say we believe. If you really want to know what a person believes, don't listen to what he says. Watch what he does. If you really want to know what a person believes, don't listen to what he says. Watch what he does. James chapter 2 is where we are this morning. I want you to turn there. We're going to pick up where we left off last Sunday morning and finish this chapter. And next week, head into chapter 3. James chapter 2, verses 14 to the end of the chapter, are simply a validation of everything we have just sung about a moment ago. He starts by saying this, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but no deeds, can that faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food, and one of you goes to them and says, Go in peace. Keep warm and well fed, but you do nothing about their physical needs. What good is that? The same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by actions, is dead. Someone will say, I've got faith, or you have faith, and I have deeds. You show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by my deeds. You believe there's one God? Good. One translation said, good for you. Even the demons believe that. Matter of fact, they fear and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. He was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what he does, not by faith alone. In the same way was not Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off into different directions. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. James seems to be drawing a line in the sand. I kind of put a word picture in your mind a couple of weeks ago and said, I, I, I've wondered if he's answering some questions. The churches are taking off. They're beginning to grow now. They're scattered all over the area. They're no longer in Jerusalem together, worshiping God together in a large setting. They're scattered all over the place. A lot of different people are coming into their families or coming into their church setting, and some of them are different than them. They look different. They dress different. And it seems to be that James maybe is answering some of those questions. Somebody's coming in, and we're not sure what they fit or whether they fit or, or if they belong. They, they look a lot different than us. And James says, look, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're a believer of Jesus, you don't show favoritism. We're all a part of the family of God and talked about welcoming them in. And, and then he seemed to be answering the question or addressing the issue what about those who claim they have faith? What about just simply saying the words, I believe in God, sitting in our fellowship, how do you know? How do we know that? That's a classic question that really has been a, a question that ought to be of answered or ought to be asked for the last 2,000 years. How do you know? There are a lot of people that claim to have faith in Christ, claim to be believers. How do you know? James said there's obvious ways to do that. One of the things that he classically said that we talked about last Sunday morning, if indeed the life of Christ is in you, it's going to come out. Every living thing has signs of life. Every living thing has signs of life. If indeed the life of Christ is in you, it's going to display itself. It'll be obvious. It'll be evident. Last week it seemed to be as if he was drawing a line in the sand, saying, look, this is living faith, this is dead faith. He gave us three kind of indicators of dead faith that we talked about last Sunday morning. Empty words, just simply stating things. Phony compassion, it wasn't real, a tear every once in a while. A compassionate phrase or word, but no actions that followed with it. 
on shallow convictions. James clearly indicates that if you really believe that the life of God is in you, it's going to come out from you. You cannot claim to have Christianity or know about God and allow it to stay dormant. There's no such thing as Christianity being a private thing that I keep to myself. James would clearly say it's got to come out. It is obvious. It is evident. Your life in Christ is something you cannot keep inside. It comes out in one form or the other. According to the polls, a vast majority of Americans claim to be believers in Christ. Matter of fact, Harris Poll and Barnett Poll, we looked up this week, 78% of the United States population claims to be Christian. 78% of population in the United States claim to be Christian. 68% of them claim to have a born-again relationship with Christ. Barnett goes on to identify what does it look like to say you're a Christian, and he talks about a number of factors, and one of them is that phrase, I'm a born-again follower of Christ. I've given my life to Jesus. 68% of the American population say they are born-again believers in Christ. Wouldn't you think, by that large population heading toward three-quarters of this country, that there would be some noticeable changes? Some obvious evidence of the fact that people who claim to know Christ are then following out his principles and making a difference wherever they go. If indeed that number was true, and they really did live out their faith, don't you think it would be obvious and that you would see it? Or do you think that a lot of people, obviously in this statistical analysis, are claiming to have faith in Christ, but obviously no evidence? When you look at these pictures, when you look at this picture, can you tell whether that tree is dead or alive? Can you even tell what kind of tree it is? How about this one? When you look at that tree or any of those trees, can you tell which ones are dead and which ones are alive? Can you? Not really. How about now? Right, what's the difference? Signs of life. What about now? Can you tell what kind of tree that is? You don't have to be a rocket scientist to know that's a what? It's an orange tree. <laughs> oh, yeah, that one. All right. What's the difference? How do you tell the difference between a dead tree and a live tree? Signs of life. Leaves, fruit of some kind. When you're looking at a dead tree, it's kind of hard to tell. When you walk through the forest in the winter, it's kind of hard to tell which ones are dead and which ones are alive. You walk through the same forest in the spring or the summer, you know exactly which ones are dead and which ones are alive. And it's obvious. There are signs of life. You see leaves and fruit. Once you see it, you not only know that it's alive, you also know what kind of tree it is. James would say the same thing in chapter 2, verse 14. If, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, I'm not sure if they have faith. Because all faith has some kind, all living things have some kind of life in them. He's asking a number of questions. Can real authentic faith be expressed merely as words? Or is there obvious evidence? Can authentic, real, genuine faith be expressed merely as sentiment and never reach the point of, act, point of activity or action? Practical question is this. Can you get mellow in here? Can you even get emotional in here? Can you even, maybe during worship, cry in here and not allow that to live out your life out there? Is it possible for you to get emotional or tender in here about some aspect of my relationship with God in this place and not have it lived out out there or have it affect your life out there? James would say, to be honest with you, no. True genuine faith changes the heart. And the results of that change of heart will manifest itself in some way or another, often in some form of activity. 
Many times in activities of mercy and compassion. For I see a need, I recognize the circumstance, and it makes me want to do something about it. At the end of uh, the year, last year, actually it was done two different times. I watched Brian Williams, NBC Nightly News. I enjoy world news and what's going on around the country and around the world. They're all different. They're all jaded. I know that. I get that. But he has a segment at the end called Making a Difference. And I saw a clip, and I, I called Chuck, and I said, can you get this clip for me? Because it fascinatingly lives out, I think, what James is talking about here in this segment. Look at it for a minute. Finally tonight, a great piece on making a difference for children. And it happened in an almost accidental way when a woman from the Detroit suburbs took a birthday trip to Africa, noticed something about the children, and decided to do something about it. NBC's Chris Jansing has our report tonight from Trenton, Michigan. Rachel O'Neill's husband took her on a safari for her 50th birthday to fulfill her lifelong dream. But the trip would turn life as she knew it on its head. From rural Uganda to Malawi, she saw a sadness in the children. When you look in these little girls' eyes, you can see it. You can see that they know they've got a long road ahead. Unable to forget their faces, she outlined a simple idea in her journal. I'd like to see if a woman's group would like to begin to sew little dresses all year long to bring back next year. Their little clothes are so torn and so filthy. Her goal was ambitious, 1,000 dresses, but one problem. What were you thinking? You don't sew. No, I don't sew. <laughs> I wasn't thinking. I just thought, I want to give these little girls something. The first night in a church basement, six women made just four dresses. But word of mouth spread and community groups got involved. Then, what happened next? Rachel O'Neill says she could never have imagined in a million years. Boxes of dresses started showing up on her doorstep. Dozens, then hundreds. Montana. Montana. Yeah, another Mississippi. Maine. More than 100,000 dresses so far. There we go. Every few weeks, volunteers sort, iron, and pack the dresses. And of course, sew. Every dress we make special. I make it like if it were for my own little girl. Dresses for girls and now pants for boys have been mailed to 16 different countries, including the U.S. Three years after scribbling in her journal, Rachel O'Neill looks around and is amazed. It kind of makes me want to cry, to tell you the truth. Um, that's how I feel. I really do feel connected to these women. How are you? On journeys back to Africa, it's a connection that bridges thousands of miles, lighting the eyes and the smiles of thousands of little children. Chris Jansing, NBC News, Trenton, Michigan. She hoped for 1,000. She's way over 100,000 now. They did a follow-up of her just at the end of the year and talked about the fact that not only has that ministry ministered to the girls in Africa, but all over the nation, as well as in other countries around the world. She saw a need. She recognized there was something inside of her that wanted to respond in some way. And she's felt what she could do to make a difference. James, in this particular section of Scripture, verifies and validates that. He said, if you're a follower of Christ, there's something inside of you that wants to come out. It fleshes itself out in a variety of different ways, but it changes your life. changes how you look at life, how you look at circumstances, how you look at people. He's been saying that over and over again in this chapter. In this particular second half of the second chapter, he gives us two practical examples of people who lived out their faith. It was obvious. It wasn't just words. It was obvious. 
What's fascinating to me when I read it and I thought about it again last night as I was going over the message, the two characters that he chose, he could have chosen anyone to validate his point. What he chose was Abraham and Rahab, the patriarch and the prostitute. That is absolutely brilliant on James' part. To have all the people that he could have chosen, they weren't perfect people, not at all. But to have chosen these two people makes, I believe, an enormous statement. It doesn't matter how great you are or how bad you've been. But if you're willing to allow the life of God to saturate your life, it is going to come out. And God can use you in amazing ways. I mean, most people would never put Abraham and Rahab in the same chapter, let alone in the same paragraph. Abraham is the patriarch of the three major religions of the world, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Rahab is an outcast, someone no one would ever identify with. As I began to read that, I thought, God, you're brilliant. To have chosen these two characters as any of the models you could have chosen to remind us that it's not how great we are or how bad we've been. It's our willingness to give you what we have and to recognize that it's not just something we verbalize. It's something we flesh out. It is something we live out. Paul uses Abraham as well, and he alludes to that. Abraham believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness. said to you last Sunday morning, it's not that they contradict one another. James is just saying, your verbiage, your words, just flesh themselves out. Abraham's story is found in Genesis chapter 12, where God comes to him and says, I, I want you to take everything you have and place it on me. I want you to take every thought you have, every dream you want, every desire you have, and I want you to give them to me. And I, and I want to use them. And I want you to follow me. All I'm going to give you at this point is promises. Nothing else. And he said, okay. Later on, God comes to Abraham after that birth of his son, Isaac, that he'd waited for all their lives. And he said to him, I, I want you to trust me again. Matter of fact, I, I want you to trust me with the very thing that you have your whole life wrapped up into, and that is this son. And I want you to give him to me. I want you to trust me with everything you have. Everything he believed in God, everything he believed about God was wrapped up in that decision, and the decision he made was to continue to trust God. The act of offering up his son was not a saving act. If you remember the story out of Genesis where he marches his son, probably 12 to 15 years old at this particular point, up to the top of a mountain with no other sacrifice but all the things necessary for a sacrifice, and then lays him on the altar in preparation to sacrifice him until the angel of God stops him. The act of offering up his son was not a saving act. It was not what saved Abraham because we're not justified by our works. What was did, what it did was reveal the fact that his faith was real. That he was willing to trust God with every fiber of his being. Rahab's story is found in Joshua. When the spies came in to check out the land, check out Jericho and all the things that were necessary to take over all the things that God had promised them, she begins to understand and see and recognize that the God of Israel is the true God, and she finally verifies that. And of all the people in that area in Jericho, she's the one that is saved and rescued. It wasn't because she said that. 
I really believe now that the God of Israel is the one true God. It wasn't that she said it. it she was responsive and she responded. She acted on that, gave refuge to the spies. And eventually God saved her and redeemed her through that. No matter how bad you are, no matter what you've done, no matter how good you are, real faith is not something we express in words. It is something we live out. It is not something we just say. It's something that is absolutely real. We just finished the Christmas season. Every single one of you had a tree, I'm sure, at some point or the other in your room or your house. Some people had two or three or four or five all over their house. There was one thing in common about most of those trees, and that is what? They were all dead. Every once in a while, maybe you had a living tree in your house and put it in a basket or a bucket or whatever and then took it out and planted it afterwards. But most of us had one of these trees in our house, and the one thing that was in common about all of them is they were all dead. Now, you can decorate them. You can put a lot of things down on them, make them look alive, but you know and I know that they're both dead. And if you leave that tree there till March or April in your living room, you're going to know it's dead. There are going to be signs of that all over your living room floor. It is obvious. James is simply saying, I just want you to understand. That it's not by the fact that you raise your hand or you sign a card or you said a prayer. It helps me understand that you really do understand what's taking place in your life. It's the obvious. It's the evidence. I see it. I recognize it. It fleshes itself out. It lives itself out. How do you know someone has living faith? You can tell. You can see. It's not because they went to a class or because they signed a card or raised their hand. You can tell. You see the fruit. Their life has changed. The attitude has changed. Your desire has changed. You find yourself treating people differently. You genuinely care for other people. You look for ways to touch those around you. You look for ways to make a difference. Sometimes you don't even have to think about it. It just comes naturally. You look at things around you and you want to respond. You go through life now with a set of eyes that sees that it wants to help and to heal. You make good decisions because you know you'll stand before God and give an answer to the life you've lived. You really want to use the life that God has given you well. You know that you've found Christ and you want to pass that along. You want others to see and understand. That Jesus is not something we just talk about or sing about on Sunday morning. It is something that I live out. It just comes out of me. I walk through life. I look around and I recognize there are things that I want to do to touch the lives of other people. There are things that I want to do with my life or with my time and my resources to minister to other people. I can't keep it contained. It just comes out. And it's obvious. Over the last few weeks, we've given you a number of opportunities. Ted is great at emailing our, our small groups saying there are a number of opportunities for you to touch the lives of other people, of, of being able to get involved, of living out your Christian faith. I'm not saying that any of you or any of you at all have to do one of these things that we're talking about here this morning. Just the obvious that something inside of you wants to manifest itself. It wants to come out. You want to use what God has given you well. You want to use your life well. You want to use your resources well. You want to make a difference wherever you are. Today is Sanctity of Life Sunday in most churches across America. It's the anniversary of Roe versus Wade. If you know anything about her story, she did not, the one that was a part of that decision when it was made, she did not have that abortion. Matter of fact, she came to faith in God and has three healthy children. There are more children aborted in America every day than were killed on 9-11. Every single day. Knowing that makes you want to do something. 
makes you want to respond in some way. Maybe not all of us, maybe a few of us. And that's why we continually give you opportunities to, to be able to live out what I know is in there that I want to express in some way or the other. I invited Carrie Muir this morning. She's the executive director of Choices Pregnancy Center. Maybe when you walked in this morning, you saw the balloons and the baby bottles, and you kind of wondered, what is all of that? How many kids did Pastor Denny have? Or grandkids? <laughs> Carrie's going to come and share with you her heart's passion. One of the reasons that she has used her life to make a difference in the lives of girls and some guys who desperately need Christ's answers in their life. And then she's going to explain, and I am as well, what those baby bottles out there are all about. Good morning. Can everybody hear me? Is this on? Yeah, she'll get okay. okay. Thank you, Pastor Denny. Um, it's, it's so exciting for me to be here this morning. Um, I want to take you back a little bit. Um, when I was in college, I never really thought much about abortion until my sophomore year of college. I attended a Christian college, and one, girl, one day, a girl that I knew who lived on my floor, I didn't know her very well, asked me if I could do her a favor. She told me that she was pregnant, and over the weekend, she and her boyfriend planned to go to New York where she was going to have an abortion. She wondered if I would help her when she returned, bringing her meals or whatever she might need just to help her out. And of course, you know, I was, I was shocked when I found out that she was pregnant. She would be kicked out of school at that time in a Christian college if anyone knew. So I agreed. After all, she was right. I couldn't imagine going through that experience. But in, in every which way, I was complicit along with what she was doing. I agreed. And so I remember when she returned that weekend... I knocked on her door, and I remember walking in, and I saw her all curled up on her bed. The shades were drawn, and she was crying. And, you know, really there wasn't much that I could say at that point. I um, didn't talk to her too much after that point, after bringing her a couple of meals. And eventually I heard later that semester that she had broken up with her boyfriend and that she was dropping out of school. I never saw her again. But you know, inside that bothered me. I knew that I really hadn't done anything to, to help her except for bringing a tray of food or two. But what could I have done? What could I have said that might have changed her mind? Um, because really, I had just helped her by agreeing that her choice was the right one. Today, I know differently. A number of years later, my husband was just out of seminary, and he was preaching a series on contemporary Christian issues, and he talked about abortion and the sanctity of life. And I remember sitting there and thinking, you know, it's not enough for me to say that I'm against abortion if I'm not willing to do something to help women have their babies. I was a social worker, and I felt called to action. I began to look around and see what I could do. I found a pregnancy center nearby that was helping women, and I asked them, do you need any volunteers? Well, that was a silly question. Don't ever ask if you need volunteers if you're not really sincere. Within a short period of time, I became the director of that little pregnancy center, and I began to see God work in miraculous ways. There was no doubt in my mind that life was precious to him. 
We're created in God's image, and he calls each one of us to protect that life. That was almost 27 years ago. Since then, I have been involved in one way or another in pro-life work, and 16 years ago, I came to help at Choices Pregnancy Center in Coriopolis. Again, I have seen God's hand at work in so many ways. You have a bulletin insert that tells about the many different services that we offer. Six years, we moved into a new, much more accessible location than we had been in before. We also offered met, began to add medical services to the services that we were already providing. And the medical services included offering ultrasound to reveal life to women, so to speak, giving them a window to their womb. It has been incredible to see women who are considering having an abortion to see this little life inside, most often the size of your little, the tip of your little pinky. Many times the baby is moving around, waving its little arms and legs, and sometimes it just seems to wave like it's saying, hi, mom. It's just um, amazing to see that beating heart, and let me tell you, it really makes an impact on the women and often their boyfriends or parents, whoever's with them, as they see this little life. In fact, we have seen nearly 90% of women who were considering abortion change their minds when they, we use this tool along with godly counsel and prayer. Today, we offer medical services five days a week along with all kinds of practical help and hope in making us perhaps the busiest pregnancy center in Pittsburgh. However, a couple of years ago, you know, we were looking at how we were growing and all the exciting things that God was doing. And, you know, I have to admit, I felt pretty good about the impact that we were making. However, at that point, I began to look up some of the statistics in Allegheny County and the surrounding counties as to the number of abortions that were still taking place right here in our area. And I realized that over 8,000 abortions were still taking place every year. That is 23 babies' lives each day. 23 women who will wake up each morning, tomorrow morning, and say, this is the day that I have to have my abortion. I realized at that point that we had to do more. We couldn't just be content with the things that we were already doing. So as a result of that, this past year, we launched a new ministry, a mobile ultrasound clinic that we are now taking into the city, directly to abortion clinics, to university and college campuses, and into lower-income neighborhoods. We have staffed and retrofitted an RV that, um, and put it into that, an ultrasound machine. Our medical missionaries are on the streets sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, along with the good news to women considering abortion and saying, you don't have to have an abortion. We will help you. For women who have already experienced the pain of abortion in their past, we offer hope and healing through Jesus. We have a wonderful Bible study that is available to anyone who wants to participate. So, you see, we in the Christian Missionary Alliance often think we have to go overseas to do missionary work. However, God has placed a mission field right in our own backyard. 27 years ago, I responded to God's call to action in my life. I could not say 
that abortion was wrong and simply stand by and do nothing about it. Today, you have an opportunity to help. I'll be standing in the back as you leave, and um, there are going to be some helpers helping to pass out those beautiful baby bottles that you saw when you arrived. And I'm asking you, would you please take one or more of these baby bottles and fill it with your loose change? They say that the average American has about $33 of loose change laying around in their home. It may be on your dresser tops. It could be in the bottom of your purses, in your pockets. Um, Put your bottle in a visible place on your kitchen counter, on your table, and use it as a reminder to pray for our ministry and for women as they enter our mobile clinic or as they enter our center or another pregnancy center in this area, that they would be open to hearing the good news of Jesus Christ and the fact that we're here to help you. Your prayers and your loose change will change lives and make a difference, one life at a time. Thank you. Carrie. What we're obviously saying this morning is there are a variety of ways to respond. Once the life of God is in you, it comes out. It is obvious, others recognize it, and you see it. And you find yourself looking for ways to get involved, looking for ways to help, looking for ways to minister. Not just saying, be warm and be filled, but what can I do? God, what are you calling me to be? How can I look at the world and circumstances and situations with a fresh set of eyes? And what are the ways that I can respond to that? And one of our responsibilities is to give you as many ways as possible. Carrie and Dave, her husband, Pastor Dave Muir, who's a friend of mine, as well as his dad, was my district superintendent a number of years ago. Going to be out back and be a part of that. And if you want to take one of those and fill it up, I found the other day, as I've had the chance to have this for the last few days, there's a lot of loose change laying around in my pockets or in other pockets that I didn't know was there. There Other ways that you can help and other ways that you can be involved and other ways that you can minister. The final analysis, as Brennan Manning said, it's not the sum of our beliefs, is not the way of thinking or a way of speaking, it's a way of living. We don't need to theorize about Jesus, we've got to make him real. Only the true practice of our Christian faith can verify what we believe. If you really want to know what someone believes, don't listen only to what they say. Watch what he does. If it doesn't come from the inside and there's no evidence of that and there's nothing inside of you that wants to respond in any way, I got as lovingly as I I can possibly say, maybe there's nothing there. Because if indeed the life of God is in there, it is going to come out. Because there are always signs of life to anything that is living. You can decorate it. You can dress it up. But you know and I know that there's nothing there. So my greatest advice to you this morning is let the life of God come in you and so saturate you that it will come out. Let's pray. Father, you obviously know our hearts and know our needs and where we're at in life. And what really is inside, out of all the ways to tell, you're the one who knows the most. You know where we are. You know what's going on inside of our hearts. You know whether or not the life of Christ is in there. So, Father, I, I just ask for right now in these quiet closing moments that you will speak. 
And for those of us who know that the life of Christ is in there and, and we look for ways to get connected and get involved, I, I just trust that you'll continue to keep our eyes wide open so that when we see and recognize the need, we'll, we'll find ways to get involved or get connected or ways to minister in some way or another. For those of us who know what we're talking about this morning but just can't seem to figure out what's inside that doesn't want to connect, I just ask that right now by the power of your spirit that you will speak and that you will allow them to have the courage to allow the life of God to come in because it will indeed change their lives forever.